everybody. I'd like to welcome you to uh, the Combat Learjet podcast. We're really excited about uh, our guest today. Um, we've been trying to get uh, Adam on here for several months, and our schedules haven't allowed it. So I'm super thrilled to finally get this get this going. So I'm here with Derek, with Mo Guns, myself, and uh, Adam Mako. So Adam, I just want to start by telling you thank you for taking the time out of your day. I know you're very busy right now with everything you go you have going on with the books and future projects, and uh, I just really appreciate you taking the time to share some of your stories about the book and books and uh, you know what you have coming up. So uh, we're really grateful to have you on today. Well, hey Steve, thanks for having me. It's uh, the clock is ticking with our World War II veterans. You know, they're fading fast. And I'm told that even of the Korean War veterans, half of them are already gone. And so I just, I spend a lot of time, you know, just trying to churn out these stories. And and it's it's a full-time job. Uh, but every day I start my day with combat Learjet. So uh, at least uh, that <laughs> that's the way to start a day as far as I'm concerned. I appreciate that. I do. I do. And, and really... I've said this before, Instagram has been great from the standpoint that I've had a chance to get a meet of folks like you on there that I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity. So I'm definitely grateful for that. So well, Adam, I just want to begin with just you being able to tell us kind of your background, how you got started. And we we talked earlier, we're going to break this into two sessions. So uh, the first session, uh, we, I'd like to, if you don't mind covering a higher call. And then the second uh, half, we'll come back and talk about kind of the history and stuff behind devotion. But uh, I would like to give you an opportunity to just kind of tell us how you got started, your background, and, uh, you know, just maybe some of the things that we we might not have known about you. Well, today, uh, Steve, we'll talk about those two books that have this common theme. And that is, uh, there's actually a quote, a uh, Bible quote that I, I love. And it's, uh, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's this theme that drew me to both of these stories. And I think it's a theme that anyone who has an appreciation for our military, anyone who served in our military, um, really understands. I mean, that's what our military epitomizes, fighting for the man next to you and and then sometimes being called upon to make that ultimate sacrifice. So I'm I'm a hero worshiper. That's It's that simple. Um, my grandfathers both served um, in the latter months of World War II, and they're the ones who got me started in all this, and they were my heroes. And then I just kept expanding it to to these, um, these pilots, they told me stories about one of my grandfathers was in the air force. The other was a Marine and they used to take me to air shows growing up and to museums. And I would just see these warbirds in particular. And I, I was just entranced by it. And so I'd watch flying leathernecks and all, all that good stuff and Memphis bell. And, and my heroes were back when I started this, I was just a teenager. You know, they were 70 year old men. Then they became 80-year-old men, and now they're in their upper 90s, and we're losing them fast. But it's been a great honor for me to write about them. I was at first just a magazine writer, uh, writing small aviation stories. You know, magazines, most people read it, and then they throw it away. And so it didn't have that permanence. So I've been looking for the longest time to make that jump to writing my first book, something that would take a story that had never been told properly and that would cement the legacy of those veterans so that people would be talking about them 100 years from now. And that was what led me to the story behind A Higher Call. 
That's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, you know, that's uh, that just hearing the history and how you know where you where you came from and uh, how you got started is is fantastic. So, um, yeah. So obviously, you had a desire. You you saw that the uh, this generation is passing away, and time is of the essence to be able to get these stories out here. Exactly. It really is. And um, I wonder what our world's going to be like when there's no more World War II veterans. I hope and I think maybe my purpose is to see that their lessons and their character, who they were and the deeds they did, are are made known so that the rest of us can absorb this and, and make it part of us and maybe someday teach our kids. Um, so this is, you know, we're all on the same team here. It's about seeing that these stories don't go quietly into the night. And um, I've, it's just been the honor of a lifetime. And in this higher call one, I mean, to make it my first book, um, I guess we'll have to talk about that a little bit in these two remarkable men, Charlie Brown and Franz Stiegler. Absolutely. I, I was curious as I read that book, and, and I've told you this, it's a fantastic book. And I want to say that if you haven't read <laughs> a higher call, it's it's one of those books that just grabs you and i just remember uh, i couldn't wait to get back to it to uh, continue to read and uh the story is 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 riveting and and honestly as as we go through it i will tell you how i learned a lot about the other side the the germans air force that i i had uh preconceived notions about that uh, your book did a really good job of uh, of changing changing that view of mine. Um, but how did you get started? I mean, where did that story first, where did you first hear it? Where did you decide like, wow, this is, this is really a great story and I've got to do something with this. Well, this story was considered to be almost the Holy grail of world war II stories. I mean, it has this almost, you know, it's fantastic. It's um, it's almost hard to believe. Did this really happen? I mean, you can surf the internet for hours and find people asking that question. Is this real? Is this real? Because it's circ it was circulated by email. You know, I, I would get that email from an email chain back in, you know, when we're talking 15 years ago. I mean, this thing was circulating. Franz and Charlie, they they reunited in the early 90s. I didn't come along for a decade afterwards. Um, again, I was a magazine writer hunting for a good story. And so one, gosh, it might've been a Friday night. I probably had nothing to do. I mean, it was you know, back in, I had just gotten out of college. It was around 2003. And I said, I'm going to write a letter to Charlie Brown. I looked him up and I found out he was in Miami, Florida. Charlie was this B-17 pilot at the center of this incredible encounter supposedly this German fighter pilot had spared his life and instead of shooting him down, had flown alongside of him and escorted him and saluted him. And I had to just find out, was this real? And um, I had heard stories about German pilots flying alongside of American, in one case, a P-47. The German Falk Wolf pilot had emptied his guns. He was out of ammo. The P-47 took all the punishment it could and the German just flew up, almost shook his head and laughed and saluted and flew away. But that those were two enemies who had tried to kill each other a few minutes earlier. This was a German who had just tried to kill the American as hard as he could. And then he said, oh, well, I guess we're going to be friends. This was a different story. This had never happened before or since when you had an enemy in 
intentionally choose to take his finger off the trigger. But funny enough, I didn't want to tell that story. I wanted to tell the story of this brave American bomber crew and the battle that they endured. And how did you guys escape this German? And Charlie Brown set me straight. He, when, I, when he finally wrote back to me, he said, Adam, I'm not the hero in this story. You know, you think I am. He said, the real hero is Franz Stiegler. He said, if you want to do this story right, you go to Franz first, you interview him. He's out in Vancouver, Canada, and you have to travel out there. I was living in Pennsylvania. I was 20-some years old. It was a long flight. I mean, it was a big leap of faith, but Charlie said, I won't talk to you until if you really want to do this right, get Franz first, and then we'll talk. So he kind of pushed me into the story. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's incredible. So now you have to like change your thought process and go. I mean, I, as I read your book, I was thinking I would have went, "What? I don't want to go interview him." I, you know, I want I want your story just again from my preconceived notion of that. Well, and Charlie had the opportunity to have the book written about him as him being the sole hero. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a great point. Yeah, and you know, Derek, that's you make a real point there. And this this speaks to Charlie's character because he could have said, yeah, Adam, you don't have to talk to Franz. I'll tell you everything that he did. Just talk to me. Make that book. I don't know. What is it? Three? It's about 380 pages, 390. Make those 390 about me. Instead, he said no. He said the hero is Franz. He called him his older brother. Like That's what Charlie would say. You got to go talk to my older brother. And I'm thinking, wait, an American B-17 pilot gets along with a German fighter pilot? I had the same attitude that Indiana Jones did, you know, Nazis. I hate these guys. <laughs> and that was my attitude. It was, um, I, I, again, my friends were all these World War II veterans I was interviewing. And I thought, these Germans, you know, their sole purpose in life was to wipe out, you know, my buddies and to, 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 to claim the lives of so many young Americans. And I didn't realize until I went out there and I sat down across from Franz Stiegler, I didn't realize, and I almost had to ask him, I almost had to say, were you a Nazi? I never asked a person that before. And I didn't, and he, you know, he said, no, 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 I was never a part of it. And I didn't realize at that time that, that a lot of German fighting men were not Nazis. In fact, you know, you, it was very hard to join the Nazi party and join the military. It was, it was very difficult. The craziest thing was I always thought I saw those pictures of the assemblies at Nuremberg and I thought, well, you know, how much of Germany was Nazi uh, when they entered World War II? I thought, oh, probably 80 percent, 90 percent. You know, you have those rare von Stauffenberg types. But what really happened, 1933, Germany had its last election Adam. before the war. And um, during that, uh, there were 14 parties that ran. And they split the vote. And Hitler's party was actually surprised by this. They're like, wait a second, we only got 44% of the vote. 56% of Germany voted against them. And just with that 44% and some political maneuvering, Hitler was able to take over an entire country. So these German soldiers who I hated without even knowing them, you know, think about it. If you're a German soldier fighting in 1942 in the desert of Africa, like Stiegler was, um, you know, say you're a soldier or an airman, say you're 21 years old at that time, good soldier age, you were 12 years old when Hitler came to power. So 
if anything, they inherited the Third Reich. They inherited this war, and they were they were an instrument of it. But in some cases, these guys were not really a willing instrument. They were born into this war, and they had no choice but to, when their country called and they said, we're at war with the whole world, what do you do? Do you stay home and watch your entire city be bombed? And do you watch, uh, you know, you couldn't say no in Nazi Germany. You'd end up in a concentration camp where your family would. So these guys, like Stiegler, they were in a really hard predicament. Yeah, yeah. Well, and as you got the chance to meet him, I mean, it probably took you no time at all to go, wow, this guy's unique and uh, uh, just he's just special. You know, I, I want to say I was watching the video again today that's posted, mm-hmm. and I didn't catch it the first time I watched it, uh, you know, several months back, but he looked over at Charlie and said, I love you, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> It's incredible you know, that that it's it's powerful because you're like wow the two enemies and they became they became this so um, yeah I is there I I'm obviously interested in the engagement and I hope we get a chance to definitely talk about that and just for those that haven't read the book so they can kind of hear that as it goes down would you like to uh, move into that or do you want do you have yeah. any other stuff on uh, on Franz that you'd like to address before we talk about that. I think the important thing to know about Franz is that his first posting um, was in the desert in North Africa. And the way he got to be a fighter pilot was actually he never wanted to be a fighter pilot. Franz was an airline pilot before the war. He was drafted into the military. And one day he becomes a flight instructor. So he's churning out these young fighter pilots and bomber pilots. And one day his own brother, his older brother, August, comes into his classroom and Franz is actually mad at him. He says, why did you join? And August said, hey, it's this or, or signing up to fight in the mud. You know, I'm going to have to go somewhere. I'm either going to go to sea or I'm going to get drafted into the, the trenches or I'm going to fly. And he said, our dad flew. Both their, their father had flown in World War I. And he said, I want to be like dad. And, you know, this seems like the best job I can get. So Franz trains his brother, sends him to war, and his brother is killed right away. During the Battle of Britain, his bomber crashes in the night, and Franz decides he wants revenge. So this guy who was actually a good guy, Stiegler was a good guy, he suddenly decides he wants to kill British pilots to pay them back for what they did to his brother. And coincidentally, his first posting is in Africa, North Africa, against the British. So he's about to get the revenge he wants. and he winds up in this really strange theater because in the desert of North Africa, the British and the Australians and the New Zealanders and the Commonwealth pilots and then the German Luftwaffe were fighting by the rules of World War I. So they were fighting with this idea of chivalry where, you know, if a guy lands, uh, a crash lands and he gets out of his plane, you don't go strafe him in the desert to kill him. There are stories of you know, British pilots being badly burned and injured and the German medics take care of them. And German pilots would fly over the British lines and drop a note to say what had happened to their pilot. I mean, there's stories of these pilots shooting each other down and, and the one who, who captured the other one, he you know, takes him for dinner that night. They were fighting by these really unusual wars and uh, rules that almost belonged to the war 20 years prior. And in that situation, before his first mission, Franz was given a lesson. His squadron leader, Rodel, uh, Gustav Rodel, a veteran fighter pilot, 
He said, Franz, what are you going to do if you shoot down a pilot today and you see him floating in his parachute, dancing the air trot, as they called it, and just floating down? And Franz said, I don't know. I'll figure it out when it happens. And Rodel said, wrong answer, young man. He said, you know, if, if I ever hear that you shoot a man in a parachute or if I see you do it, I'm going to shoot you myself. Now, it's right before your first mission and your commanding officer, officer saying, if you make a moral lapse, he's going to kill you. And he said, wait, now, Franz, hang on. I'm telling you this for a reason. He said, you follow the rules of war for you, not for your enemy. You fight by the rules to keep your humanity. Mm-hmm. And it was a powerful lesson that soaked into Franz. It was so you can look in the mirror. You're not even, you know, the, the idea of strafing a man in a parachute, it's not even really about showing mercy. It's about protecting your soul so that you can live with yourself. I mean, it kind of benefits both you and the, you know, supposed victim. So the desert changed Franz Stiegler, and that was in him, that code, when he encountered Charlie Brown on December 20th, 1943, over northern Germany. Yeah, that's a great point, and I've I've heard that stated often that, you know, don't let war take away your humanity. And I know it seems illogical at times, but it, there's there's a lot of truth in that, that through that we don't lose our humanity. So, mm. uh, yeah, that I remember that specific story in the book and how, you know, the, and I know that there was a time uh, later on where the where the Russians were shooting down people in a parachute, if I remember right. So um, mm-hmm. but the Germans, you know, they still said we're we're not going to do that. So. Yeah, it happened a lot uh, in the Pacific all the time. You know, the Japanese were known. You you know, you would hold on. You would try not to pull your ripcord right away because the Japanese were were rabid about doing that. Um, it happened on the Eastern Front between the Germans and the Russians. Uh, it happened in Germany itself by between the Americans. You know, in many cases, there's a lot of stories of of Americans strafing German pilots because we got to this point where we knew any of them still flying at the end of the war had to be a good pilot. He had to be an ace. And some American pilots took a very pragmatic approach and they said, I don't want this guy coming up, you know, to kill me tomorrow. So they'd see him floating down in his parachute and they'd uh, try to zap him now so they wouldn't, he wouldn't kill another American tomorrow. And it was just, the, the war became total war in that sense. Um, but uh, on this day, December 20th, 1943, um, it wasn't, the code was still there. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I I'm excited for you to just again that that day in the background of Charlie and his crew uh, is still amazing to me. As I as I looked over it again and just thought this is their first mission in country. It it was Charlie's 21 years old. I mean, can you imagine? He's 21 years old. He's got a crew of nine. Uh, he's responsible for his bomber ye old pub. Uh, he got up at 4:30 that morning and. You know, he's out over northern Germany and he's got one engine shot out. Another is running wild. Another is partially damaged. Uh, he had been in a big air battle that morning and he's a straggler. Ye old pub is limping home low over Germany, barely able to stay aloft. Uh, it had been attacked by Falkwolf 190s and Messerschmitt 109s, a whole pack of them, upwards of a dozen planes had, had attacked him. And this is where, you know, the B-17 was such a rugged machine. Um, you know, this was at a time though, when the air war was almost in the Germans favor, you know, it's early in the bombing campaign. Charlie was hitting Bremen that day. And these were the days 
when the 8th Air Force was losing 5% of the planes or men on each mission. So 500 planes go out, you know, you're losing 25 planes. Okay, it doesn't sound like that much out of 500, but when you think about it, that's 250 empty bunks in England that night. And then you lose 5% the next day, and then 5% the next day, and then 5%. It's almost statistically impossible to finish your 25-mission tour if you do the math. And so Charlie, Charlie was a brave young man. I mean, he put himself in the cockpit of this plane into a unit, the 8th Air Force, that suffered a 12% casualty rate in, over the course of the war. The Marine Corps was 3%. I mean, when you think about it, the 8th Air Force lost more men than the Marine Corps in World War II, and that was Charlie's unit. And his plane was about to become a statistic. I mean, it was, it was just afternoon, and he's limping home. He's got one man dead, the tail gunner. He's got uh, his right waist gunner is missing his leg. He's got another two or three crewmen with, with uh, shrapnel in them from, from uh, exploding shells. Those Falkwolf 190s that hit this bomber, you know, they're, they have six guns, you know, so you got six guns firing at you and they're spitting out about 11 pounds of steel per second. And that just tore this plane apart. So the plane is shredded. It looks like Swiss cheese. The, um, you know, the rudder is practically hanging by a thread. I mean, that is the condition it was in when it flew over a German airfield. And this German airbase was called Field. It's actually a grass airstrip. And that's how this mistake happened. Charlie was just trying to get to the coast. Once you get to the North Sea, you just steer west and you can get back to England. You know, it's a two-hour flight or so. But he was just trying to get to the sea and he didn't notice this grass germ. He flew right over it low. And there on the ground is Franz Stiegler. And Franz looks up and he sees this bomber fly over. He had already shot down a bomber that day. He had All Franz had to do was shoot down one more plane and he would have had enough points accrued from his victories to earn the Knight's Cross. So we're talking their Medal of Honor. Um, so he's, you know, he's on the verge of being a hero. He jumps in his plane and he slams the canopy shut and he takes off and he's about to shoot down this sitting duck. And it's what it's just this incredible moment of warfare. He flew up behind this bomber. He had his finger on the trigger and he said, okay, well, when you shoot, I'll shoot. It was kind of his idea of fairness, you know, uh, once a tail gunner opened fire at him, he'd shoot and, you know, nine times out of 10, he's going to win because he's got more guns and he's an ace, but the tail guns never blink. They lay, they actually are hanging low and he gets closer and closer and not, no one shoots at him and he comes closer and he sees the tail gunner is dead, slumped over his guns and his blood is pouring down the barrels. and. He realizes, I mean, this is the first time Franz has ever seen a dead man in the air. And he's just, the bomber captivates him. He forgets that he's a German fighter pilot for a minute. He's just a pilot looking at this machine and marveling at how it's still flying. And he pulls up alongside the right wing and he sees that the waste gunners are both knocked out. And he sees the men in the fuselage trying to care for one another. And then all of a sudden, that lesson from Africa, those, all those lessons from his whole life, he thinks of his brother who was killed, and he says, I can't have this on my conscience for the rest of my life. You know, I can kill these people, but I'll lose my soul. 
And he decides to do the unthinkable. He takes his finger off the trigger. And he flies further up alongside, and he goes along the wing. And Charlie Brown in the cockpit looks over, and he thinks, I'm living a nightmare. I'm in a nightmare. He sees this German plane there. He closes his eyes. He shakes his head. He tries to shake the cobwebs out. But it was real. This nightmare was real. The German was on his wing. And Franz had already made a decision that he was going to escort this bomber out of Germany. Actually, first he wanted them to land on the ground, but Charlie wasn't going to do that. And Franz knew the anti-aircraft guns were coming up. The coast was coming. And so Franz did this incredible thing. When he, he could have flown away at that point. He could have said, okay, I did a good deed. Did my good deed of the day. I didn't shoot down the American bomber. You know, maybe they survive, maybe they won't. But he knew they were coming up on the coast. There were these flak guns. German flak would have blown this bomber out of the sky. Or another German fighter plane would have come around and knocked this plane out of the sky. And so he decided to do this incredible thing. And I said earlier, you know, it was, you know, greater love hath no man than this. Franz pulled out from the bomber so he could be clearly seen by anybody around from the ground or the air. And he stayed with it. And he took this plane out over the coast. And eventually he came to salute the American pilot and fly away back to Germany. Just saying his last thoughts were, good luck, you're in God's hands. And that was it. And that's how the encounter ended. It only lasted 10 minutes. And I, I remember picking up from the book, and you said this in here, that really, had he not been on the wing, he would not have made it. So the, the anti-aircraft saw uh, Franz, and they didn't shoot. But if he, if he would have just left, there's probably no chance. He, he didn't just spare them. He, he basically chose to take responsibility for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, this was an enemy willing to lay down his life for his enemies. And uh, what happened to those guys on the ground, you know, we can only surmise, but, you know, the Germans actually fixed up 40 B-17s that they had shot down. The B-17 was so rugged, the rivet pattern was so close, it was so well designed that they were able to refurbish 40 of these things and use them for special missions, sometimes to train their pilots, sometimes for long distance endurance missions for commandos and so forth. And so these guys, these flat gunners on the ground, they see a B-17, they see a Messerschmitt 109 escorting it. Hey, is that a, one of our guys out on a secret mission? You know, they just, all they knew was they couldn't shoot if one of theirs was there. And so they let it go and flew out over the North Sea. Charlie made it home. You know, he was praying the whole way, barely limped into England, landed at the first airfield he came to. And never forgot the German who spared his life. In fact, he couldn't talk about it. His own command told him, you can't tell this story because they didn't want other Americans to think of the enemy as human because some gunner might take his finger off the trigger and think, oh, well, hey, this one wants to fly with me too. You know, let's, you know, we're going to, you know, this might be that friendly German. No, that German could not be known. He had to be buttoned up and that story had to be hidden and classified as top secret. And it was for decades and decades and decades. Yeah, and that makes, I mean, as I read that, I could i could sense they wanted the, the tail gunners to be able to pull the trigger and not, like you said, not hope that this was, he was going to escort us home. So, uh, and, and that's sad that that story had to be, you know, if you will, uh, filed away because of that. Yeah, and Franz's war ended. Uh, so Charlie kept the story secret. Franz would have been, he would have been killed as a traitor 
if anybody caught him, if anybody wrote down the markings on the plane and called it into their local Gestapo headquarters. Franz was a criminal, a fugitive, and a traitor in the minds of many Germans. And so he, uh, you know, he got out of there. He went back to his air base the next day and never told anyone. Um, and at the end of the war, the German pilots, a lot of the civilians turned on the fighter pilots. Uh, it was like their Vietnam moment, you might say, where, you know, we had people on the West Coast, you know, spitting on our soldiers coming home from Vietnam. In this case, a lot of the German civilians spit on the fighter pilots because they said, you know, your job was to stop the bombs from falling. And you obviously failed because look at our cities. They're all destroyed and they all lost family members. And so Franz was persona non grata in, in post-war Germany. And he said, I'm out of here. He said, you know, I, I, I watched this country tear itself apart. I watched this country try to destroy the world. It's a good thing we lost. And he said, I'm done. And he actually ended up emigrating to Vancouver, Canada. And that's where he was when 40-odd years later, Charlie Brown had this crazy idea that maybe he could find the man who spared his life. Yeah. Wow. And I, I you know, as I talked about that, that must have been uh, – quite a moment when uh, when they finally met up and uh, was able to relive a little piece of history there. Yeah, I almost feel like we should keep it secret how he how Charlie found him because it's it's such a good story. You don't want to ruin the ending. Yeah. But um, but he did find him and the two became best friends. They became uh, fishing buddies. They used to go speak at rotary clubs together in museums, and they, they would speak to civic groups and Boy Scouts, and they would tell the story that enemies can become friends and enemies are better off as friends. And um, they used to call each other brother. And, and I always, when I first interviewed Franz and I went down to Charlie's house and I interviewed Charlie, I always wondered, you know, is this, is this for the, are they doing this for the because it sounds nice, because it's warm and fuzzy, or do they really believe this? And one night, I actually, I stayed in Charlie's house. He gave me a guest bedroom, and he said, hey, here you go. Here's my bookshelf. Here's all my files. He said, work as late as you want. We'll do our interviews every day, and he gave me free reign, and I found this book, and it was a book about German jets, Messerschmitt 262s, because Franz had gone on to fly those, and in a higher call, we follow when he joins a jet squadron at the end of the war, comprised of all the great aces who were still living at that time in one last, last ditch effort to try to stop the bombs from falling. And I found this book and in it, it was from a gift from Franz to Charlie and it had this inscription in it. And I wasn't supposed to see this. I mean, Charlie didn't like pull it out so I would find it. I found this on my own and this is how I knew that this story was truly real you know i mean in addition to the video that you referenced earlier i found the inscription inside of the cover of this book and it was written from franz to charlie and i can actually read it yeah. franz wrote in 1940 i lost my only brother as a night fighter on the 20th of december four days before christmas i had the chance to save a b-17 from her destruction a plane so badly damaged it was a wonder that she was still flying the pilot charlie brown is for me as precious as my brother was. Thanks, Charlie. Your brother, Franz. Hmm. And I closed the book and I put it back on the shelf and I thought, it's all real. It's all real. And in fact, I actually went a little further. The next day I took the book back out and I took a photo of that inscription. And um, 
In fact, you know what I'll do? I'm gonna uh, I'll post it on on Instagram after uh, after this so that it, people can see it. Because you know sometimes seeing is believing. Absolutely. And when you see this inscription and Franz has poor English and his shaky handwriting, it's like my God, it's real. And it's the same with that YouTube video. If you type in the Franz Stiegler and Charlie Brown incident, you can see the video taken when they sat down for the first time. And that's when to go back to how you began this. At one point, Franz turns to Charlie and slaps him on the leg. And he starts, Charlie, Franz is almost on the verge of breaking into tears. He says, I love you, Charlie. Mm. And that was it. And that's the story. That's why I call it the Holy Grail of World War II stories. It is. And there's just so much from life we can get out of that. Just the, I don't know. I, I told you, I told you this on the phone the other day that, you know, it's, you know, the last people in the world that want to execute war are the ones that have to do that. You know, we don't we don't take pride and enjoyment in that. And to see these two men come together and show love and compassion to each other is it's incredible. And there's a lot that we can all learn from that. Uh, if two people shooting each other in a war can become friends, you know, the person that offended me, you know, whatever. Why can't we, you know, mend those fences? So, yeah, exactly. Awesome. I'm with you, Steve. Yeah, it's uh, Adam. It's uh, it's such a such an amazing story. And like you said, you don't want to give it away. That, that was just a you know a flyover at thirty five thousand feet. There's, There's still a lot of other amazing stories in the book for those uh, who haven't read it. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, if you haven't read this book, you you need to get this. This is this is one of those books in life that you read and go, "Wow, I am so grateful I put the time into that." So. We have a little bit of time here, Adam. Would you be interested in potentially uh, taking a question or two? If you guys have a question that you'd like to uh, ask Adam directly, we've got just a couple more minutes. We could do that. And uh, and in the meantime, I just uh, would you like to finish or wrap anything else up on the higher call before we, we take a break, Adam, and uh, move on to uh, devotion? I, I think um, I think a higher call. We I think we covered it. Uh, I couldn't end it any better than you did. It's uh, it's a story that shows us that even people we don't understand in our own society, you know, a, a person who may seem foreign to us in our own neighborhood, in our own community, in our own town. It's about you know once you once you look past that person as a stranger or or you know as you know the unknown. You know, you you realize that there's a common humanity in all of us, and so yeah, it made made me a better person. I think it it can make us all better people, and that's that's the legacy of Ron Stiegler and Charlie Brown. Yeah, that's absolutely it's it's great, and uh, you know, it's that the heartbreaking uh, portion of that, as you learn, is just as these men pass away. And but I, I'm grateful that you were able to capture the essence of their relationship, their story, and all that. And like you said, it. Obviously, with it being a bestseller and continuing to be a bestseller, you, you've definitely preserved that story. So uh, I know what are the statistics on on a higher call right now? Um, uh, I posted that, but it's uh, it's been at Amazon's uh, number two World War Two book, you said? Yeah, it's a number two rated um, World War Two book. Um, of all of them, which is a war story. That's it's yeah. crazy. I mean. I don't know. I, I set out just hoping that um, people would give it a chance. I thought, oh my gosh, this because this is a lot about the German fighter pilots. I I found I did what Charlie said. Franz was a hero, so the book is you know leans toward Franz. I mean, maybe there's sixty percent Stiegler and forty percent Brown. And I thought, are people ever going to read a book about a good German? 
And they were ready for that. They were ready. And, and it's such a rare story to see it from both sides. So the book went on to 24 weeks on New York Times bestseller list. It hit number three in, in London. I thought the British are never going to, they're never going to read this book. Um, their cities were destroyed by the Germans. But I forgot one thing. You know, they understood the mutual suffering of war. They, they had suffered. And they made the Germans suffer, you know, the RAF and our guys, you know, we, you know, they repaid the favor. And, and so they, they, they understood suffering. The Polish, I never thought the book would sell in Poland. I mean, this is a country divided by Germany from 1939 and, and ruled like they were slaves. And the Poles are reading this book and it's being read in Germany and it's selling in Germany, a place where they were, they're often told the only war hero is someone who either betrayed his comrades or deserted or tried to kill Hitler. You know, that's that's the German mantra these days. There's no such thing as a hero who fought in, in Germany. Uh, just the traitors and just the the deserters and and the guys who actually tried to, you know, replace Hitler and and, and change the war. But I, I I hold that Stiegler was a hero. Um and those the families of those that American bomber crew, they believe the same thing. So 12 languages, this book is selling around the world. And it's not because, you know, it's not not due to me. I mean, Charlie Brown gifted me this story. And Franz Stiegler, he could have said no. And a higher call would have never came to be. These guys realized that it was a good thing for the world to hear this. And so any success it's had, it's it's all owed to them. Well, you're you're very humble. And I will just tell you, for me, reading it, you did a fantastic job of bringing the story to life and uh, sharing their stories. And I loved how you, you picked both their stories to share that. So I think you did an awesome job and uh, the stories are, are fantastic. So uh, with that, Adam, I think we're going to wrap up our first mm -hmm. session. We're going to take a quick break for those live with us. If you'll just hang out, we're going to take a few minutes. That gives us a chance to uh, prepare and then we'll get started on the second session and we'll go into devotion on that. If that works out for you. Works for me. All right. Thank you, Adam. Hang in there. We'll be right back.